Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and a director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I am very excited to welcome Denise Seidelman as my guest today. She's the co-founder and partner at Rumbold and Seidelman, where she practices exclusively in the area of adoption and reproductive law. Denise is a member of the leading national adoption and reproductive law organizations, including the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys, where she was a manager of the Board of Trustees from 2016 to 2020, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, and the Family Law Institute of the National LGBTQ and Bar Associations. So welcome, Denise Seidelman. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us what assisted reproduction is and, and how it works biologically and how it works legally. Okay. So assisted reproduction is when people have a child through means other than sexual intercourse. It could be through sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, or through a surrogacy arrangement. So first you have to conceive the child. But a very important step in the process is making sure that the person who will be parenting the child is legally recognized as a parent. And that's where the lawyers come in. So you mean the, the, parent, the person who's going to be raising the child is legally represented as opposed to the person who's biologically connected. Is that what you mean? So the, so the person who is going to be the legal parent needs represent all the parties need representation in the process and the person who's going to be parenting the child who may or may not be genetically connected to the child needs to have some mechanism for making sure that they are recognized legally in every and in every capacity as a parent so what assisted reproduction does unlike when you have a child through through sexual intercourse what it does is the person who's the parent doesn't have to be genetically connected. So the person who's genetically connected to the child could be a sperm, egg, or embryo donor, and they have no intention of parenting or raising the child. And so the person who is going to parent the child needs to go through a process to ensure that they'll always be recognized as the parent. So assisted reproduction, you're moving, it's it's a new model for for parentage. You're moving away from genetics and the act of giving birth, which is how people are traditionally determined to be parents unless they've adopted the child. And it's into the new world of medical technology or assisted reproductive technology where genetics is no longer a factor in determining who's a parent. It's a new world. And you've got to totally rewire the way you think about who is a parent. And, and Denise Edelman, it seems like the law needs to rewire it too, because if you take it back to adoption, adoption's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And when a, when a child is adopted, 
the child is legally taken from the biological parents and legally connected to the new family, right? To the adoptive, to the adoptive parents. And right. so, I mean, that's, that's pretty easy to wrap your head around <laughs> as a lay person, right. right? You say, okay, right. this child is no longer the child of these people legally. Now this person's child is the child of these other people. And so that's pretty clear, right? And so I guess right. what, what you're saying is that those kinds of ideas as to what parenthood means is really has to change to keep up with the new world. That's right. And and that is exactly right. And that's what we did. That's what we did. So for many, many years in New York, people were having children through assisted reproduction, whether they're a different sex couple experiencing infertility or whether they're a same sex couple that need medical assistance to have a child or a single parent. They can't do it on their own, those people. And so they need another person to help them to have a child, whether it's a surrogate or someone to provide the egg or sperm. And so for years, people were having children, but the law hadn't caught up with how children were actually being born and conceived. But about two years ago, I was part of a group of three other attorneys, and we drafted a bill which is known commonly as the Child Parent Security Act, and that bill totally revised all of parentage law in New York State as it relates to children born through medical-assisted technology. So the law finally caught up, but it took about 10 years. The first bill that we that we wrote was introduced in 2013, and there were years of work that went into it before that. So the law finally in New York has caught up with the science, and now it, people having children through medical technologies have a way of securing their parental relationship. They no longer have the fear that they won't be recognized as a parent of the children that they conceived and that they're raising. That sounds like a horrible a horrible anxiety and fear. And I know that many times people who are doing a private placement adoption often have that fear too, that the, that the biological mother in that case will change her mind at the last minute after there's been so much that goes into it and so much emotional connection that happens there. So how, how does the act, the Child Parent Security Act, create the parent security for the the, for the parents of, of children created not through Indeed, sexual intercourse, mm-hmm. yeah, through assisted yeah, reproduction. Yeah. So what it does is it, it establishes clear rules, like a recipe. If you follow the recipe, you're protected. So what it does is it's, it looks to the moment of conception. So if two people conceive a child together, using, let's say, donor sperm and, let's say, a single intended mother, if their intention at the time the child was conceived, meaning the time the sperm was donated, was that he was that the sperm contributor was a donor and not a parent, then he is a donor. And he does not have rights to the child. And the intended parent would be protected. But since you're relying on people's intentions, At the moment of conception, what you really need to do is to document those intentions. So that's why it's so important for people to 
speak to a lawyer and be represented by counsel, or at least create really clear documentation as to who is the parent and who is the donor. And without that documentation, you'd have no way of knowing that the child wasn't conceived through sex. Because if the child was conceived through sex, then that person who provided the sperm is a parent. But if it wasn't conceived through sex, and that, and you can establish that, and then that person is a donor, you submit that documentation to the court, and the court can issue an order which says the donor is not a parent and the intended parents are the only parents to the child. So it provides clear rules. And people don't need to be afraid as long as they do it the right way. It's when they don't do it the right way, don't document their intentions, that they can get into trouble. So, Denise Edelman, so years ago when sperm donation was first a thing, because the technology was there to do it, and there were sperm banks created and people would donate men, <laughs> would donate sperm yes. into the banks. Was there ever a risk or were there ever lawsuits where a sperm donor then later reappeared and said, actually, I want to assert parental rights to a child conceived with the sperm that I donated? So the sperm banks, I can't answer whether there's ever been a case because Typically, when, when you're doing it with a sperm bank, you don't get any identifying information about one another. So the sperm donor is only known by an identifying number. The world, and so that's how it was for a very long time, and, but the world has completely changed with DNA testing, 23andMe, yes. and, all, and all of Absolutely. those other things. So donor-conceived persons are finding their donors now. And I don't think that it's a question of necessarily suing people who had donated through a cryobank, a sperm bank, mm -hmm. but it's more a question of the donor-conceived children, or persons, I should say, finding each other or finding the donor. That is definitely something that's happening. Where we've seen the difficult cases or where people didn't go through a sperm bank and where they were known to one another and a friend agreed to provide sperm to assist another friend to conceive, they know each other. And before we had the legal protections provided by this new statute, there were definitely cases in New York where an intended mother, there was, there was one big case, sued the donor and was found, and the donor was found to be financial. This was in the old days, not yep. under the new law. I was found to be financially responsible, and he was sued for child support when the child was 18. I always say they wanted to get college paid for. That's probably why they did it. And then in the reverse, there have been cases where a donor donated sperm to, to moms, and they had been raising the child for quite a number of years, and then he brought a paternity action and was successful, again, because it was based on the old model of parentage, which looked to genetics. And he said, I'm genetically connected. It's, it's my child. And under the old law, that was the, the case. Yeah. But under the new law, it says if he was intended to be a donor, and you can, and that's documented, or that's found by the court to be true, then he's not a parent, and people are protected. 
I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WBOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Denise Seidelman about assisted reproduction. And so, you know, I, I have a friend who contacted me last year because he had donated sperm when he was in, in college and had been contacted by one uh, by a child, created, and he was interested in talking with this child, but nervous that, you know, he might have some responsibility, which I assured him that he didn't, but it's just such an interesting, like a brand new world, right, of, 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 of family connection. And the whole idea of what family is, is just so much broader legally, emotionally, culturally. It's just amazing to see that. It's a new world. Yep, we are definitely in a time where the definition of what is a family is is dramatically evolving. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So interesting. So talk to me a little bit about surrogacy. You know, surrogacy seems a, a little bit more complicated than just donation. And I know that the law in New York changed relatively recently around those issues. So let our listeners know, what it, what is surrogacy? How does it work? And what is the law around that? So for years, surrogacy was compensated. Surrogacy was illegal in New York. And the person who gave birth to the child, the surrogate, was presumed to be the mother of the child. And after this parentage law passed about two years ago, now surrogacy, compensated surrogacy, is permissible, it's legal. And the contract that the parties enter into, the intended parents, that's how we call them, the people who are intending to parent are called intended parents, and the surrogate enter into a contract, and that contract is legally enforceable. Meaning once they sign the contract and the surrogate becomes pregnant, then the intended parents can file a petition with the court seeking a court order recognizing them and not the surrogate as the legal parent of the child. And she cannot change her mind as long as you follow the requirements in the statute. And there are very many requirements. It's what we did in New York was we took best practices in terms of what the best way to do a surrogacy arrangement would be from across the country, all the different statutes. We took the best of it and, and incorporated that into the New York statute. So there are a lot of protections for surrogates in the New York statute. For instance, she had the intended parents have to buy her a life insurance policy. They have to pay all of her medical expenses. She's entitled to independent legal counsel paid for by the intended parents. So there are a lot of protections in the statute for the, for the integrity of the process to make sure everybody's protected. And if your agreement complies with those very detailed requirements, it's legally enforceable and the surrogate cannot change her mind and the court must enter the order declaring the intended parents to be the legal parents it can be filed before birth, but it goes into effect the moment of birth. So that there is legal, that's why it's called the Child Parent Security Act. There is security between the parents and children from the moment of birth if you followed the, the requirements of the law. And my understanding, Denise, is that the surrogate mother cannot be biologically related to the child under New York law. Is that correct? 
Absolutely correct, yes. And so it must that be as correct. a result of a, of a egg donation or an embryo donation that is biologically yes. inserted or implanted. Yes, it can be either the embryo used to have the child can either be formed from gametes or egg or sperm donated to the intended parents or it could be the intended parents, gametes, egg and sperm. So it's it's really interesting. And do you think that assisted reproduction or some of the stresses, I mean, I know that parents look to have children on their own sometimes for years before they, in the traditional way, through sexual intercourse, but mm-hmm. also through you know, sperm donation, in, in vitro fertilization, you know, all kinds of hormones and medical treatments in order to try to have children that can be quite stressful in a relationship. Is, is it your experience, if you, know, if you have any sort of anecdotal or, or more official information about this, about the impact of assisted reproduction on marriages and, and whether or not it puts more stress on them than otherwise? Oh, I think, I think the journey of conceiving is, is so stressful. When you're not successful and you're going through that journey, it's incredibly stressful. It, absolutely. I mean, I haven't personally in, in my own practice, and I've been doing this since 1996, this area of the law, I haven't seen marriages fall apart in the middle of the process, but I can only imagine that this, I mean, the stress is obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. You know, you're going through something that people can accomplish so easily in so many unplanned pregnancies, and people can struggle with infertility. This process, people could go through IVF trying to use their own gametes, going to different doctors and specialists for years and years and years before they then take the next step to go to donor gametes. And then sometimes they have to then take the next step of going to a surrogate. I have clients that have been trying to have a child for four, five, six, seven years, which is just mind-blowing. It is. And so it's incredibly I mean, only costly, too. The stress. Incredibly costly, and they look around and they're saying everyone else can do this so easily. And for them, they they have to go through such an incredible, heartbreaking ordeal. But when it's over, I always say that's their labor. When it's over, you know, the, the, the joy. I I don't know whether they experience greater joy, but <laughs> but I guess there's an argument that could be made when you've worked that hard to have a child. That child is is the most precious thing in your life. Very, very, and loved. the most important thing in your life. Yeah. Yes, that's what I. That's what I observe. You know, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about speaking of divorce. I do want embryos, to, but I want before embryos, I do it. Yes. I want to remind people whether they're listening to divorce dialogues. And I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and also available as a podcast. And I'm talking today with Denise Seidelman about assisted reproduction. And we're about to talk about assisted reproduction and divorce. But Denise, if people want to learn more about your practice or have some questions about assisted reproduction that as a lawyer you can help with, how can they reach you and how can they find out more? Okay. Well, you can always find me online. It's My, my law firm is Rumbold and Seidelman. So it's www.adoptionlawny.com. And or my phone, 914-779-1050 or email. I think if you just put my name in, you will find me. 
Okay, Denise, that sounds good. So, yeah, let's talk about divorce and assisted reproduction. I think there's some really interesting issues that come up about around that. So, what are your initial thoughts off, just off the top of your head about it? Yeah, one thing that I just want everybody to know, so I'm glad you're providing me with this form to do that, is that so many people conceive embryos on their own. You know, it's, they, I'm not even talking about using donor gametes. It's just because of, for whatever reason, they need, whether it's a fertility preservation, you know, they create embryos perhaps before they're undergoing chemotherapy or having a hysterectomy or they know they're becoming at, at more advanced age and so they want to create embryos while they have the ability to do that. And so let's say it's a husband and wife or it could be partners, can create embryos together. The embryos are in storage and there have been quite a number of cases where let's say it's typically, typically it's the woman whose egg who has used her eggs to create embryos, and then she, let's say, undergoes a hysterectomy or is older and no longer fertile, and she wants to use the embryos, and she and her husband are divorcing, and her husband will not allow her to use them. Now, people should know that at the clinic, you're going to be asked to sign an embryo disposition form. So if you go through infertility through IVF, you're going to be asked to sign a disposition form that is incredibly important because you'll be asked to make an election as to whether what happens to the embryos in the event you divorce. And let's say in there they, that the, they agree that the embryos would go to the wife in the event they divorce. Let's just say they said that. If they did, what happened typically under the old law is that the clinic would go back to the parties and say, do you still agree that the embryos will go to the wife now that you're divorced? And if the husband said no, clinics were highly unlikely to do allow the wife or the woman to use the embryos over his objection, knowing that he could be sued for child support because under the existing model of law predating the new bill, he would be liable for child support because it was a child conceived, create, the embryo was created during the marriage, and he's genetically connected. And they looked to genetics in the old law. So what we did in the Child Parent Security Act is we created an option where if, if uh, people create embryos together, they, and they're represented by independent legal counsel, and in that agreement, they agree that one of them will give the embryos to the other. That agreement is legally enforceable, and the parties cannot change their mind in terms of who gets to use the embryo. So it's, I, I don't know if I, what I just said, it makes it as clear as it should be as to how important this is to people, because I would get really sad calls from women who, you know, aren't, aren't able to have a genetic child because of, let's say, they're older and they're not able to use their embryos and their prior spouse basically vetoes their ability to do that. And so under this new bill, it's really important people know that when they're still liking each other before there's any hostility in their marriage, if they enter into this agreement, the partner, the, you know, they can't change their mind after the fact which should be incredibly reassuring to people, and everyone should know about that option. 
So I think what you're saying is that when you are creating the embryos to be frozen, that there are some papers that you sign that may not have that much impact at the time that you're signing them, but later on will have a tremendous impact because it basically says who will get to control and use those embryos and that the new law makes that that determination that at the time of the signing of the papers, when when the embryos are being created, basically binding. And and so, Denise, I have a real question for you. So what does that do with the child support obligation? Does the father, in the example that you gave where the embryos are going to the to the mother and to the wife at the time, she gets them in the divorce, is the father then still liable for child support? No, not if. If they only signed the document at the clinic, yes, he could be. They have to not only sign the agreement, the disposition agreement at the clinic, but they need to then sign a separate agreement between themselves where they're each represented by independent legal counsel. If they took that additional step, then let's say it's a husband, the husband giving the embryos to his wife after signing that agreement is not financially responsible for child support. He is not a parent. That's a dramatic change in the law. That is, and is that second document signed at the time of of the embryo creation or later on when the people are divorcing? You could do it at the time of creation. If I were advising a woman who was about to undergo a hysterectomy but had an egg retrieval before that, I would tell her to do it at the time of conception that, that the embryo is created, or I would tell her, do not combine your eggs with anyone else's sperm because you might lose your right to use them. But you can do it later. The problem is when people think to do it later, they might already be in a contentious situation and, and the husband or the, they, one of them might, they might not be as cooperative with one another. Yes. So as I a divorce say, lawyer, I say do it when you love each other. It's like a prenup, do it right? When you love each other. <laughs> yes. Do it when you love each other rather than when you're fighting. And then, then, it, then it could become a, a, you know, it could become a bargaining chip. All right, Denise Seidelman, this has been fabulously interesting, wonderful information for people divorcing and not who are interested in assisted reproduction, and I'm so grateful for being my guest on Divorce Dialogues. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun.